you're listening to the Field Notes Podcast, where we descend from abstract ideas and disembodied theologies into the embodied, context-specific particulars of ministry on the ground. We hear from local leaders about struggle, breakthrough, doubt, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Seth Richardson. Like, there's my church growth strategy. Extend God's gracious hospitality, and if you if you're faithful with that, um, then God will uh, God will continue to invite you into those invitations more and more and more. It's because you wouldn't choose to hang out with these people. We're not an affinity group church, and that's the one thing I've been saying more and more here lately. We are not an affinity group church, and it's going to take work. Some tensions aren't meant to be resolved; they're meant to be held because they keep us awake to these realities and open to the Spirit's presence and the reign of Christ breaking in among us. So we're holding those tensions, but that is becoming exhausting. Today we hear from Fred Ligon, pastor at Williamsburg Christian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Fred is also the founder and president of 3E Restoration, which partners with faith communities to help transition neighbors living through homelessness and social displacement into holistic sufficiency. Fred helps us see what it looks like when traditional power centers really get redefined in a congregation, and how cultivating social reorientation does not come about through grand programs or strategies. This kind of ministry is hard, but maybe when you're genuinely detoxing from distorted ways of being with one another, that's part of the point. Here's Fred. So I am situated in what is called the Historic Triangle. It's where Williamsburg, Virginia, Jamestown, and York all come together. It's the birthplace of the United States of America and the colonial capital. So all roads to Manifest Destiny uh, lead here. I could ride on down to uh, Colonial Williamsburg and sit in the church that Jefferson and Washington and many of them sat, most likely uh, waiting very very, uh, impatiently to no longer have to sit there, right? Uh, And so that's the story of my city. The thing about Williamsburg is we live uh, a historical narrative. We have a living museum in Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg, and Jamestown. And so history comes to life, and history is meant to be lived and relived. And I'm not sure maybe my neighbors would say it that way, but our economy is built on our story, our our story of old. Our economy, our, our, our way of life is formed by the story we tell. Uh, of the past. And in a very real way, the past continues. Every day, the past continues to visit the present. But what I find, like many stories, is there are layers of the story that goes untold. And in our particular city, those layers have been revealed and revealed and revealed as every year has gone on, um, where a fuller story is being told. So you could say that I live in a city of evolution, even though they would say it's the city of revolution. Uh, I would say it's a city of evolution because we are constantly evolving in our understanding of who we are as a people and our place in this country and even our place in the world. And so Williamsburg Christian Church of where I get to serve is a 56-year-old congregation that comes from the Stone Campbell tradition or the restoration movement that desired to be uh, what they would have said back then, especially a, quote, New Testament church in the revolutionary city, which is how Williams, one of the ways that that Williamsburg is referred to. 
Now, in Williamsburg, there are the come-heres and the from-heres, and Williamsburg Christian Church was a community of come-heres, not from-heres. So from the outset, Williamsburg Christian Church had an identity of, we aren't from around here. And that was, especially in the 60s and 70s, probably because of the sense of patriotism and pride of being a part of Williamsburg, you know, the historic triangle, that was a debate. That was a, a, a almost a class debate. Uh, there were the from here's and the come here's. And especially being a tourist economy where tourists are welcomed and wanted, but also at the same time, a bit irritating uh, because there's a disruption to the way of life and the traffic increases and I can't get into my favorite restaurant. Yet, what brings every neighbor together in this locality is a story of how the past consistently forms and informs the present. So all of the injustices and the blood that was spilled on the grounds upon which I walk and the way that story of violence and revolution is told um, forms how we see the world and how we see even current events. It creates uh, creates a, a posture of, of excitement. It creates the posture of humility and at the same time creates a posture of defense. Uh, because if the story is threatened, um, then that's a threat and an affront to how I understand my own place in the world. Uh, and I think in Williamsburg, Virginia, it's probably the thickest I've ever seen in any, any location I've lived. Okay, let's pause for just a second. There's a lot going on here. This is one of those points where I usually do one of those little bright musical transitions, but let's just all pause and take a breath. Ministry is always embedded in a place. And for most of us, the places in which we minister are haunted by a long and abiding history of racial injustice. But rarely do white leaders take these demons into account. Think about your context. If you began that reckoning today with how racial injustice has shaped and continues to shape the dynamics and geography and social forces of the place where you minister, where might you begin? Okay, back to Fred. So Williamsburg Christian Church, when I arrived about 10 years ago, it was about a 150-person church. Uh, a beautiful community of people uh, situated right in the heart of the city of Williamsburg. We're right near William and Mary, um, you know, the College of William and Mary, which which some people may know. Uh, we're we're next. We're not next door, but we're within a good walking distance. Williamsburg Christian Church was what I would consider have to be a, a country church. It was a country church where everybody knew each other in the church. The demographics were about the same. The socioeconomic. Uh, backgrounds were about the same. There weren't a lot of young families at all, but they were a beautiful people who loved each other well, uh, loved uh, the Lord, taking care of each other well. But something unique happened in this church uh, about a year and a half before I came. They were no longer satisfied with being a community that just loved each other well, especially when they looked around in their community and felt like they could be be more uh, faithful in the, the mission of God. Now, that may not have been their language, but that was the heart. And so they asked themselves a question after doing a year-long evaluation within the church. 
if our church were to shut its, if our church building was to shut its doors, and if we were to no longer be a church, would the city notice our absence? And after honest and humble reflection over a season of time, they answered no, which I think speaks to the heart of the church. And so in an effort to answer that question differently, if asked, they did what most churches, I think, often do. I probably shouldn't say most churches. They did what many churches in North America do. They knee-jerked into programs. So they, they got banners and they put a banner above the door that said, you're entering into the mission field. They, they put up banners with various programs that they were associated with and they began to work hard. So their answer to become a life-giving presence in the city was to work harder. That was the answer. And to go do more program. And by the time I got here, they were exhausted. And there wasn't a whole lot of fruit from it. And so as a result, they were a church in decline. And they were a church very discouraged. And I didn't really have any answers. Um, so what I did was when I came here, I decided uh, that I would be with my family, a missionary to the city to join a community of missionaries. I had a mentor one time say to me when I got uh, asked to serve with Williamsburg Christian Church, he said, Fred, you're not, you're not going to be their pastor. You're going to become their pastor. And so I took that language of becoming and I I pursued that language of becoming with the church, becoming their pastor, but I determined to be a missionary to the city. And so for one year, I did an ethnographic project on the city of Williamsburg within WCC, Williamsburg Christian Church. And I went to every meeting that was open in our city within the historic triangle that concerned itself with brokenness, that concerned itself with poverty or injustice or any kind of conflict-oriented issue. And I went to every one of those meetings and I simply just sat and observed and I listened. And after a year, I began to ask the Lord with my elders, what, what, where does the gospel, where, where is there good news where can there be good news in the soul of the city? Who's the soul of the city? And what are the broken places that are in desperate need of good news? And then we began asking, okay, God, what kind of people do you need in order to be faithful to that witness of good news? So our questions about our, our church and who we were to become didn't begin with the church. It began with the gospel and what the spirit of God could be up to in our city and where the real broken places were and how we could enter into the suffering of others uh, and follow the suffering servant into that suffering and be present and seek to facilitate presence rather than program. And that's where things begin to shift in the life of WCC. Notice how Fred, with his community, makes space to discern mission. This is where and how leaders can begin to move from generic programs into contextual mission. Fred and WCC make space to discern this question. What and who is the soul of the city? Where are the broken places in desperate need of the gospel? What good news is God already making available there? Then, critically, they ask together, how do we become the kinds of people who can be witnesses to that good news in this place? There is so much disruptive potential in making space to ask questions like these. So while all that is happening within that first year, as I'm sitting and listening to the suffering of the city, trying to discover where the soul of the city is, to bring that to my coworkers and my shepherds, to discern what God could be doing and 
Where the good news is desperately needed most poignantly, within the first six to eight months of my tenure here, one of my coworkers, uh, our youth minister at the time, was in a car accident and was paralyzed. And that first year was filled with great disorientation. A church this small, it impacted all of us. And even while that happened, within the first couple of years, we had suffering moment after suffering moment where we had a, a sweet uh, newborn child pass. We had an elder get cancer. We had an elder's wife get cancer. And so within the first two years of my tenure here, our church was formed in the fires of suffering together. We lamented. Matter of fact, my very first sermon, I, I had this grand illusion that my whole first message series was going to be on the Sermon on the Mount. We were just going to come out hard and heavy. But my first sermon series was on Romans 8. It was on suffering. And so the very first sermon I ever preached was one of lament here in this town. And what it would mean to be a people willing to lament the suffering in the gospel of God. Because even before I arrived, even before I got here, there was suffering. People were getting sick. And a church this small and a church this loving would feel the weight of that. And it was almost as if the suffering did not cease. Now, while all of that happened, we began walking with a grandfather, grandmother, a daughter, and a, and, a, and a grandbaby out of homelessness. They found us, and we found them, and we began to love each other, and we began to walk with each other. And what began with just me and my wife walking with them, and me and my coworkers, and me and my elders turned into me and the rest of the congregation. What was the first kind of a me-oriented experience where I'm with this family turned into a we experience. And as a church, we were walking with this family. For me, that was very comfortable. In the midst of a lot of suffering and discomfort, that was comfortable because I'd been working with people in social displacement for, for eight years prior to that and walking with neighbors out of homelessness. That was very comfortable for me. What was not comfortable was trying to become a pastor at a church that was suffering in a city steeped in history and at times even denial um, and just all the complexity of this. So our church, learning to suffer, was learning to suffer together, was also learning to suffer with others who were suffering, who weren't even a part of our church. And the Holy Spirit did, oh, wow, did some beautiful things. I mean, with death comes life, right? Like with death comes resurrection. We were beginning to witness resurrection. My coworker came out of rehab, um, physical rehab, and now he's in a wheelchair and we're rebuilding their house and we're rebuilding a ramp. We're rethinking how baptisms are conducted. We're rethinking family ministry as a whole. We're rethinking everything. We're rethinking what it means to be the people of God in this place. So in all of this, as we were walking with this family out of homelessness, word got out. And, and I mean, we weren't we weren't posting this. We weren't sharing this. I, I don't I don't feel good about those things. We were just doing we were just doing it. We were we were essentially entering into the suffering of a family as we were suffering. And so we all just suffered together as we were figuring out what it meant to live in the reign of Christ. Um, and that, that's really, that's really about what we were doing. Um, but word got out somehow. And so an 17 church interfaith collaborative came to me and asked, you know, if I could describe what Williamsburg Christian church was doing, because then by now we had a couple of other folks we were walking with out of homelessness and people were catching word of that. And before we knew it, we had these unchurched and de-churched neighbors gathering with us on a Sunday, just explore what God is up to in this place. And so all of a sudden we started growing as a church. And as we started growing as a church by just doing this, we weren't doing programs. Matter of fact, we really, we killed almost every program we had. Um, 
I made a presentation to the 17 church interfaith collaborative of what we were doing. And I'd written a curriculum and a framework about how to do, how to be present with our neighbors and homelessness in an, in an organized way, not in a programmatic way, but in a way that, that we could all share the burden as a community. And I called it three E encourage, equip and empower three restoration. And so this, uh, this interfaith collaborative heard the presentation and wanted to get after the same thing. So, okay, uh, we grabbed a couple of, a uh, couple of three churches to give a kind of a representative to a citywide effort and called the county uh, and the city and asked uh, for them to send a neighbor who was on their do not serve list for social services. And with 17 churches, we walked with this family and developed, I, I, I took this 3E restoration process and and began to deploy it out with 17 different congregations. And it was an extraordinary failure. Um, it, it didn't go like we anticipated at all in any way. It was quite disorienting. My ego was deflated. Like so many things were happening because it was this life-giving effort and our church was a part of something beautiful. And then all of a sudden it was like a year later and it was like, ah, I failed, but it didn't. That was a weird thing about it. It actually didn't fail, even though it completely failed. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's this tension there. Um, because three of the churches came out of it with us and said, we want to do this. We want to be a part of this. This is life-giving. And so I was like, okay, let's let's do that. And, and so I had to start a nonprofit I, because I'm a pastor. Like, I don't, I don't feel the need to, like, I can't do. I was already making biscuits at Chick-fil-A every morning, Seth. Like, I was... I was already working a part-time job to make ends meet as it was. I didn't have room for another job. <laughs> and so I uh, called my elders and I called some of the other guys and gals who were a part of this journey with us and created a board of directors and WCC paid for the incorporation papers and the 501c3 papers. And we launched this separate 501c3 nonprofit called 3E Restoration Incorporated to encourage, equip, and empower these other local churches to be able to encourage, equip, and empower our neighbors and gracious hospitality. And ah, man, like, so now like eight years later, it's this uh, like national nonprofit. It's, it's crazy and it grew out of the local church. We have 10 local churches doing it. We're in several different cities and in some states from San Francisco to Dallas to Mississippi. Um, and it all grew out of the, this little bitty, like this little church called Williamsburg Christian Church who just wanted to be faithfully present in its city, like with no illusion to do anything other than that, but to be present. And all of a sudden now, like our church had a witness and a voice. And so we started seeing these folks who were giving up on church coming in to be in a part of life with us. And now we had 60 William and Mary students coming. Matter of fact, the word on the street at William and Mary's campus was before you give up on Christianity, make sure you go to WCC first. And that kind of became a narrative. And we became known as this church of, of, of just kind of a misfits. And that became, that became the witness of WCC. And before we knew it, um, we were this, this, this church of, of, of missional communities, this church of communities trying to meet neighborhoods, churches trying to, trying to be present in who we were as a city and um, our building being a part of a collaborative of a, of a winter homeless shelter and um, we were the church and are the church that the city of human services, the human services in our city calls when they have needs. Um, we're a church that uh, social services calls when they have needs. We, we have been graced with the presence within our community, I think, to be able to just say, you know, we're here to work for the good of the city 
and to bear witness to um, the love of the Christ who reigns and to extend the hospitality of the God who welcomes all. Um, and so one time I got this call from a nun out of Nigeria, but she lived here. She was a group of an order of Nigerian nuns who came to Williamsburg to care for the intellectually disabled um, and um, developmentally disabled and seriously mental, um, serious mental illness uh, neighbors in our, in our locality. And she believed that God sent them here to take care of these neighbors because we weren't doing a good job with it as a, as a city and maybe, you know, obviously even as a country. She called me one day and she said, hey, uh, I heard that your church welcomes everybody. Um, I said, I hope so. She said, well, I have a group home of 25 men and women who live with serious mental illness, developmental disability, intellectual disability. They've been asked to leave two other churches over this last two years, and I can't do that again. Can they come to your church? And I said to this, I said to this woman of God, I said, sister, that's not a, that's not a question I have authority to answer that Jesus has already said they can come to our church. It's only going to be a question of how do we love them well when they become a part of who we are. Uh, and so we have this beautiful group of men and women um, who are a part of our community. We have Nigerian nuns in our church. We, we are this group of people who are socioeconomically, racially, ethnically um, diverse and different. We don't belong to each other, um, but yet we belong with each other um, because of what Christ has done in forming us together. So it's almost like what began 10 years ago to be formed in the fires of suffering has carried on in many different ways and in many different places uh, through many different people that have now become Williamsburg Christian Church. And there's a witness to that. There's a witness. It's a witness that we didn't cultivate uh, through social media. It's a witness that we didn't cultivate through um, great programs. I think it's a witness that the Holy Spirit cultivated through our desire to just be faithfully present for our neighbors. Tending to failure, suffering, and weakness is often the doorway into newness we simply could have not manufactured even if we had tried. Notice how WCC became known by how they were present with the hurting and broken. They were the Church of Misfits. And notice how that journey came through identification with and sharing in the suffering and pain already present among them. Our capacity to say yes to the Spirit's invitation to mission outside our community is formed through tending to the places of failure and weakness already in our midst. That is part of how we begin the journey out of latent colonial instincts and into faithful presence. This is where a genuine reordering of worldly power begins. Continue to listen closely as Fred describes more about how this unfolded for them. What happened, Seth, I remember sitting with my, um, sitting with my elders. I said, you know, God's going to redefine the power center of this church because God could trust us here. Mm. He's going to take us out here now, and he's going to ask us if we can be trusted here. And if we're trustworthy here, he's going to ask us if we can be trusted here. I said, so when the, when the, when the group home came, I said, that's God saying, can I trust you here? And I told my elders, I'll never forget. I said, you watch. LGBTQIA neighbors are going to start showing up. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Um, and that's just who we've become. And now it's now in the pandemic, 
our growth has been people of color. Our brothers and sisters of color have been coming. So now it's like God has constantly redefined the center, the power center of our church and the center of belonging. And, and the more that God has brought us outward, if we have become trustworthy, God extends us outward. If we become trustworthy, he continues to extend us outward. Because nobody, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing it, right? The preaching's not doing it. The music's not doing it. Space it and doing it. I, mean, no, I can't write a book mm. about this. Like people could be like, hey, write a book. Okay, I, I got a book for you. God entrusts people to whom he trusts. <laughs> like there's my church growth strategy. Extend God's gracious hospitality. And if, you, if you're faithful with that, um, then God will, uh, God will continue to invite you into those invitations more and more and more. And there's, there's church growth. You can do all the other cool things, like our liturgy with silence, all that. It's all beautiful. And then that matters, you know, because you have to have practices to form us into a people, which is a whole other conversation. But that's, yeah, that's who we are, man. Whoa, hang on a second. Yes, that is a different conversation, but one that we should definitely press into. We've been at this place before of trying to understand the intimate and mutually reinforcing relationship between our rhythms of justice and how we gather and worship as a community, our liturgy. Fred's going to paint a picture of what this looks like for them. All right, so it's one thing to have people from all places of society come together in a room and meet. It's another thing to have these people get formed together, right? So one of the unique gifts of my tradition is that we celebrate Eucharist every week. And so if you said, what is the one practice that you believe, Fred, is the most formative? I would say it's Eucharist. Because it's there that we remember that we are all hosted by the gracious host and none of us get to choose who sits at that table. And it's there we then are forced to ask the question, if we don't get to choose who comes to the Lord's table, why do we choose who comes to our home tables, to our work tables, and to our classroom tables? So in a sense, it's a, it's a Eucharistic life that is formed through the divine hospitality of the Christ who is present among us. When we discern the presence of Christ, where mutual submission, uh, where one anotherness and where thankfulness is cultivated, where we are reminded that we are not just a people welcomed in by this God who is hospitable toward us, but that God is a homemaking God. And he invites us to become a homemaking people where all people can find a home with God like we have, and we can find a home together. And even in the midst of all that complexity and all that difference, especially in a culture where ideology is separating us and where what David Fitch says, the enemy making machine is alive and well, the table becomes a centering place for us where we are reminded we move from we move from word to table so we move out of the the conversation that's what we call this conversation we move out of the sermon and conversation whatever you call it into the table like so the invitation is always to the table so the good news is a guy who primarily does the teaching no matter how terrible the message is and there are some really bad ones um the table like becomes the the, the saving grace of the entire thing right like like it's all it all moves us there so in our liturgy where we have confession and prayers of the people where we have music where we have five three to five minutes of absolute silence that we call practicing the presence of god together where we sit silent in the presence of god as a people um and let the noise be the noise while we do this together and where we come into a conversation in scripture where i may offer a homily and hopefully have some engagement some dialogical engagement around that message together. It all comes to the table. Everything moves us to that space. And let me tell you, when you are side by side, someone coming to the table, 
who you would not choose to stand next to the other six days of the week, I think the Holy Spirit does something in that. And so I think that's pivotal for us. And, and one of the things that we open up with, so our church lives into a rule of life. So when we do gather, we open up with two things. We call it a who we are, and then we call it a rule of life. Our who we are comes from Peter, and it's we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, to proclaim the mighty deeds of the one who called us out of darkness. Every week we gather, we proclaim that. That's the first thing we say together as a gathered people, that. We don't say a song. We don't say a prayer. That is the first thing we say together. So every member of our church family has that memorized because we say it every week. It's a it's an identity reorientation that no matter what society says you are, this is who you are and this is who we are. And then out of that, we do our rule of life. We, we, we perform our rule of life verbally. We say, love one another for God's sake. Guard one another's backs, protect one another's personal values, believe one another's motives, sing one another's praises. So we move from the who we are into the implications of the who we are, which is what we call a rule of life. And then we explode in song together, and then we move through the liturgy and it lands at the table. So every breath we breathe in our gathering and the liturgy that forms us is intentional in reorienting our lives toward this homemaking God who invites us to make a home with him and has summoned us to invite others to find a home with him. And the hope, the hope is that it translates in how we live our lives the other six days of the week. It's one thing to have people come into a room together. It's another thing to be formed together. And then it's another thing to have that formation change how we live our lives together the other days of the week too. Anybody can fill a room. The question is, can you fill your living room with those same people? And that's the question we're always asking. Don't miss it. When we consider the way that we gather corporately, the way that we shape our liturgical rhythms, it's never just a question of technique or form or style, even though there's a place for those questions. If we're interested in unwinding the enmity that simmers between us as a central feature of God's reconciling work among us, then we must pay attention to the social dynamics of our gatherings. What does the way we worship and gather signify about the relationship between bodies marked by difference? Is the way that we gather corporately reinforcing or interrupting the social structures that separate, divide, and destroy on the basis of embodied difference? So here's the thing. As God forms us into a community of people who, who just do not belong together, but yet belong with each other because of Christ, it is the most complex and difficult thing I've ever been a part of. Like, I, I, don't, um, I don't know what I'm doing. My, my leadership, I'm not sure we all, I'm not sure any of us really know what we're doing because the question we're asking is how do we a church that is multiracial, multiethnic, socioeconomically diverse, intergenerational, and I know these are all buzz terms, but I mean a church that is filled with all of this story, and many of these stories conflicting stories, and many of us in different places in understanding our story. Some of us living through willful blindness in that story. Some of us living through sort of a cultivated blindness in that story. And we're trying to wake up to what, what it means to be human. Like all of this, how do we become like, how do we become closer? How do we become the community 
that God wants us to be? How do we live into our belovedness together? Like, how do we share in this common life that God has formed among us? Because you wouldn't choose to hang out with these people. We're not an affinity group church. And that's the one thing I've been saying more and more here lately. We are not an affinity group church. And it's going to take work, work to learn to find the community and the friendships that we all desperately long for in the belonging because we aren't just this naturally connecting community of people that come from similar stories and spaces from the color of our skin to our bank accounts to grew up in church to never gone the doors of a church building until now to just coming off the street to living in a gated community to black brown white to um male female struggling with what it means to be male and female to like all of these different things all of these different embodied realities clash and the hardest part is figuring out how to find life together uh in a way uh in a way that makes surprising friendships possible and that's what i believe i do believe that not being an affinity group church makes surprising friendships possible and so the question we're constantly asking is, how can the Spirit of God cultivate a kind of practices among us outside of that Sunday space um, that can make surprising friendships possible? How do we become the household of God? How do we become the family that we know God has called us to be? How do we become that? There's this gap between us. How do we move through that gap? How does the Spirit lead us? through that gap so that we stand on the other side. Again, think about how during the pandemic and just before the pandemic, all of our growth numerically were, um, most of our growth numerically are people of color. Um, we were already a little more diverse. You know, we were a little, we were almost multiracial, right? Like, but we were still majority white. Now we're, now we're, we're leaning in different directions. A AAPI, um, African-American black, um, and, and, and frankly, uh, other descriptions of neighbors. And here's the problem, man. Like there's not going to be, there's not one issue. It's just, if you came to WCC, you just, you don't have anything in common with anybody here in a sense, except for Christ. Like that's the, that's the thing. A, a, a member of our church family could look at another member of the church family and go, I have zero in common with you, like nothing what do I do with you in my life? <laughs> and what are you to do with me in your life? And I think that becomes most prevalent when things happen in society. So every time a tragedy happens in society, we take uh, our commitment to be a kingdom of priests. And remember, it's a part of the thing we say every, every gathering. We take that seriously, and so we lament. We will pray a prayer. So if a mass shooting happens, we will pray a prayer. Uh, over that mass shooting, and it's a liturgy. If it's uh, if racial injustice happens and gets televised, and so our our black and brown brothers and sisters are coming to this gathering feeling a certain way, we're going to name that. We're going to lament that with right. And we've had people who've experienced mass shootings, so when they come, they're feeling a certain way. We're going to name that uh, and lament that with right with. Uh, when natural disasters happen, we're going to name that and, and, and lament that with. Anytime these things happen, we do this. This is a part of our practice. And sometimes it feels like it's every week, no, no joke. But, but what that reveals, that reveals something, that reveals the differences. When you name things and then you lament the suffering, when you name the injustices and lament the injustices, 
it reveals from within the community those who struggle to even see them as an injustice. It reveals within the community those who deeply feel the weight of that injustice. And that creates conversations and anxieties and sometimes even antagonisms that have to be navigated. We are a community of what Scott McKnight in that book called, we are a fellowship of difference. Um, the I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, right? And so that, that is a complex, hard way of being a Christ follower. And I don't want to just continually sound whiny about it. I mean, I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but I, I just, when you look at your brother and sister at the table and you know in your head you don't really want them in your life and you don't get their life, but yet you are in their life and they're in your life because of Christ and you're willing to stay put in that community and work out what that means. That's a, that's a level of maturity that's beautiful, but it's, it takes work. Um, and so when we do things together, how do we, how do we get the most of us together? Like when we have, when we share a meal together, how do we stay together to share that meal? Um, rather than have 50 people leave because uh, they don't know what to do with the people that's going to sit across from them at that table. Those are the tensions we're holding right now. The tendency would be to resolve that tension, but some tensions aren't meant to be resolved. They're meant to be held because they keep us awake to these realities and open to the Spirit's presence and the reign of Christ breaking in among us. So we're holding those tensions, but that is becoming exhausting. Yeah, because when I think of the disciples, I mean, they were in an affinity group. I mean, I don't see Simon the Zealot hanging out with Matthew the tax collector on a regular, you know, on a Friday afternoon. I mean, I don't see Peter and them hanging out. I mean, it's, you look at the kind of people Jesus brought. I know it's a bit cliche these days to say it, but you look at the people Jesus took table with, you know, that's, 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 that's our legacy. That's our story. Um, I don't want to live into a different story. I want to live into that story. I want my son formed in that story. Uh, but I will tell you, it's, it's, it's easier to just not accept that story. It's easier just to be Peter, James, and John rather than Peter, James, John, Simon, Matthew, um, Thomas, Judas. Like it's, it, it just be easier to be an affinity group church. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm leaving some of my humanity on the table when I choose an affinity group church. And that's the thing. I'm leaving some of that on the table. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to leave that on the table? Uh, why wouldn't I want to take that, hold that and live in that and let it form me too, as I sit at the table with these brothers and sisters of mine. Some tensions are not meant to be resolved. The vision for Life Together that Fred is leading into creates a social dynamic that is disruptive because it challenges the prevailing social structures from which people are coming as they enter into the congregation. So Fred is wrestling with those tensions and the difficulty that comes with that, but also saying, let's not too quickly dull the sharp edges from this just because it causes tension. There's something about the experience of social tension that is integral to a community where people who are not supposed to be together come together in Christ. It raises the question for us, is it a little too easy to be together in our community? Here in this last section, Fred turns to sources of hope 
And at the heart of Fred's hope are all the ways, big and small, that social belonging is reoriented in Jesus' body. Notice Fred's metrics for success here. Success is when he gets a call from Health and Human Services. When someone from outside the community calls, those are the sacramental signs that the transformation of distorted social structures and broken relational dynamics is actually possible. What are your metrics for hope? A source of hope for me um, is anytime we're together as a community of faith, whether it's in our house or at a shared meal or at a movie night uh, or at the table, at the Lord's table, um, and I see who we are. Like it's the embodiment of the gospel that is the community of faith we call Williamsburg Christian Church is a source of hope for me because I see that the categories of belonging and distinction society impresses upon us are not irreversible. Um, I, I see that the excluded can be included. I see that uh, the enemies can be reconciled. I see that those who live through social displacement can find a place and a life-giving story by which they can orient their life uh, and not do it alone. I see that we aren't irreversibly categorized as society would have us believe. And I, I need to see that. I need to see that expression of the body of Christ in the body of Christ. I need to see it. That's hopeful for me because everywhere I turn, I am told I have authority to determine who belongs and who doesn't belong. And so I need to remember that I do not. And when I do not have that authority, that looks like something, and it looks like something similar to this, the, the this of, of Williamsburg Christian Church family. That's a tremendous source of hope, and I think, I think there's a witness to that. And so when we get a call from human services or social services, or we get a call from some other organization in town to just help, to be present, or whether or not we can take on some children in some homes, or whether or not we can turn the building into a makeshift shelter during a pandemic or whatever the case may be, that, that's hopeful for me because it says to me that I think there's a deep inner longing in society as a whole that people, people don't want to believe we are irreversibly categorized, but they've never seen it, so they don't know what else to do about it, so they live in it. And when we get a call from someone outside of the body of Christ saying, hey, can you, we believe you guys are trustworthy. Can, can you be a part of this with us? That's hopeful for me because it tells me there's a longing inside of everyone to belong. There's a longing inside of everyone to find a home, a home with God, a home with a people who have found a home with God. They would never maybe name it that, and that's okay. That inner longing is there. We got a call from Human Services to um, take on some children whose mother is living through addiction and recovery and is now battling cancer and asked if we had families that would take these children in. And we have families that have taken these children in and we as an entire church family have brought those families forward and prayed over those families and as a church family named what is happening and recommitted as an entire community, as a church family to support them emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, socially. 
Um, it's a very public, a very public we uh, experience, we we experience as a community. Um, and and human services called us to ask if we would be willing to do that. Uh, even before that, we had uh, William and Mary, the university, called and said they had a displaced uh, law student who didn't have a place to live from an uh, international student. And would our church be willing to find a place for him to stay? And I made an announcement one Sunday morning, and I had literally, other than where this 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 neighbor was from, that's all I knew. I didn't know anything else. And by the end of the day, I had seven families willing to take him in, and a family took him in for almost a year, and he even came to know Christ. Uh, baptized him into Christ, and now he's in a big city moving on with his law experience. It's, it's those kind of witnesses and those kind of experiences we get invited into. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast, brought to you by the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. And special thanks to Fred for sharing how the Spirit is working in his context. The Field Notes podcast offers a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the kind of work we do at the Telos Lab. The lab partners with you in your ministry context, digs into the details and nuances of your context, and helps you discern new transformative practices that helps your community participate in what God is already doing. If you'd like to learn more, check out the link in the show notes. Peace.